Welcome to the first Taste of Ways podcast. I'm your host, Afia Henriquez, and this is a podcast about all the things we throw away and the scummy side of New York City. We'll explore history, ecology, the human impact, current events, experiences of ordinary New Yorkers, as well as literal and figurative trash. I'm doing this podcast to educate people and reduce the harm done to the environment. New York is a special place, and when I say New York, I mean all five boroughs, not just Manhattan. So, we want to stop illegal dumping and littering, because what we throw away doesn't just disappear, it goes somewhere. How can you get involved? You can start by following our Instagram, Taste of Waste NYC. We also have a TikTok with the same name, and you can submit photos of heavily littered areas. Also, we will call 311 and complain with you because solidarity is where it's at. Nothing is going to get done if we don't do it together and organize as a collective. Support this podcast by subscribing on Patreon at patreon.com slash taste of waste. In this episode, we'll explore New Yorkers' past history with garbage. So, let's dive into the detritus and swim in the scuzz. New York, some call it the greatest city in the world. But as charming as that cliche may seem, our existence on this archipelago is very precarious and hazardous. Being an advanced metropolis comes with a cost. For much of the 19th and 20th centuries, decisions were made by powerful men that changed the landscape. Decisions that permanently altered the geography and continue to affect people's health and safety into the present day. From the very beginning of European settlement on the Lenape lands of Manahata, Sapokanikan, Ipitonga, and Rockaway, just to name a few, there was a drive to reshape the landscape. European explorers were amazed by the geography and the bounty they encountered. They claimed they could smell the fragrance of flowers in the meadows and valleys of Long Island and Manahata from their ships sailing in the harbor. The Lenape, New York's indigenous population, lived semi-nomadically, changing campsites with the changing seasons. They had designated fields for growing corn, beans, and squash, their staple crops and utilized the slash-and-burn method, allowing fields to rest for periods of years before they were replanted. The Lenape had no domesticated livestock. They relied on hunting small game and fishing to satiate their appetite for meat. According to the book Gotham, A History of New York City to 1898, the Lenape way of life minimized accumulations of garbage and waste. Though Pearl Street in Lower Manhattan would get its name from the mounds of oyster shells left along the East River shore. Constant relocations also helped minimize the human impact on local plant and animal populations, giving them a chance to rebound before the Lenapes returned the next year. New York's original inhabitants were a no-frills people who took only what they needed and believed in the interdependence of all living things meaning all walks of life were connected spiritually. Although they appreciated some Dutch tools, heavy things like iron pots and kettles were of no use to them. They did not accumulate objects because their lives were transient. They took only what they needed and needed only what they took. 
Although there had been European explorers in the New York region beginning in the 1520s with Giovanni da Verrazzano and a few trading posts for furs in the century that followed, there was no permanent European settlement until 1624, when the Dutch West India Company brought families from the Netherlands to the southern tip of what would become Manhattan. These people were considered both citizens and employees of the colony New Amsterdam, part of the greater New Netherlands settlement. This growing village attracted misfits, criminals, and religious and ethnic minorities from all over the known world, united in the hopes of gaining riches through the fur trade. In a town where one in four buildings housed a business selling alcoholic beverages, pigs, goats, horses, and cows roamed the muddy streets between the ramshackle hovels of their rambunctious inhabitants. In 1647, after a series of corrupt and inept leaders, Peter Stuyvesant, for whom the Brooklyn neighborhood Bedford Stuyvesant is named, was sent to New Netherland by the Dutch West India Company to assume the role of director. Stuyvesant was a disagreeable man. He was a devout member of the Dutch Reformed Church and was intolerant to all other faiths, especially Jews. By the time he reached New York, he had had a long and colorful career with the company, and he had lost a leg in battle, defending the island of St. Martin from the Spanish. His right leg was hit by a cannonball and amputated, requiring him to use a wooden peg. Stuyvesant saw this event as a sign that God was saving him to do great things. When he was elected by the company to replace William Keefe, the then director of New Netherland, whose corruption and alcoholism had spiraled out of control, Stuyvesant found the destination where the sign pointed. New Amsterdam was why he was spared. It was the answer to his anguish and physical sacrifice. He approached the unruly colony, which was meant to function as a factory or machine, enriching the company's shareholders, with the idea he was its savior, making the colony pious, profitable and productive was to be his life's devotion. He immediately set to work cleaning up the rowdy little settlement concentrated below Wall Street. In 1648, Stuyvesant banned the practice of allowing livestock to wander freely around town. Residents were forbidden from throwing rubbish, filth, ashes, oyster shells, dead animal or anything like it into the streets. Residents also had to be told not to dump their own waste in the streets. Any privy that released excrement at ground level was banned, for it not only creates a great stench and therefore great inconvenience to passers-by, but also makes the streets foul and unfit for use. Essentially, no more open-bottom street potties. In 1657, Stuyvesant passed an ordinance establishing five official sites for dumping trash. New York City's First Sanitation Law The following year, Stuyvesant was successful in establishing the first hospital. In 1664, New York became a British colony under the control of the Duke of York, the son of King Charles I, hence the name New York. Although Stuyvesant was ready to fight to the death as he had fought in the Caribbean, he lacked resources and his soldiers mutinied. It was a peaceful transfer of power, and Stuyvesant went on to own a large farm, cementing his family's place in the upper crust. His last direct descendant died in 1953. 
Like Stuyvesant, the new ruler struggled with managing the hygienic conditions of the growing settlement. Workers known as cartmen drove around the city with one-horse wagons. They did a lot of odd jobs, making deliveries, fighting fires, transporting felons, and also collecting rubbish and cadavers. The city had no formal sanitation department under the British, and contracted these men to keep the streets clean. In 1675, a stinking canal built by the Dutch was filled in to create Broad Street. By the 1690s, the city was growing beyond the original boundaries designated by the Dutch. The wall along Wall Street was being used for firewood and it was posing an obstacle to growth. The last of the wall came down in 1699 and its stones were recycled to form the foundation of the new city hall. The city did not immediately grow due to a charter that gave the municipal corporation control of the land, and most people still live crammed below Fulton Street. To solve the space problem and respect questionable land charters north of the settlement, the governing body, then called the Common Council, decided to create landfills and sell water lots to merchants. Water lots are a lot like they sound, an area of water sold as real estate. Developers who bought areas along docks promised to fill in the water and erect buildings at least two stories high. Hills were leveled to fill in the water lots. They were also convenient places for dumping waste, like animal carcasses. In 1697, the Common Council rejected a petition by citizens for a sewer, objecting to the cost. City residents had to keep depending on open channels in the middle of the streets. These gutters, meant to channel rainwater, were often jammed with junk and dirt from nearby households. Throughout the next century, the Common Council would continue to skimp on municipal improvements. Although they kept the streets in good repair to ensure business and commerce could take place, they paid little attention to sanitation. There were street cleaning laws, but pigs and dogs still roamed freely in the overcrowded city. After 10 p.m., city residents were allowed to dump tubs of human waste into rivers. The structures along the waterfront became coated with a layer of fecal slime. The city finally got a storm sewer under Broad Street in 1747. However, the sewer functioned poorly, was clogged with debris, and flooded the streets posing an obstacle to pedestrians. Sewer overflow produced smelly puddles, attracting flies. The stench was made worse by hot weather. The Common Council was also unsuccessful when it came to stopping crime. Assaults, muggings, and robberies were just as commonplace then as they are now. So contrary to anecdotal evidence, de Blasio and Eric Adams did not ruin New York City or allow criminals to overrun its borders. The criminals have always been here. It has always been a grimy place with grimy people. People have been harping about the lazy and the vagabond from the time of Peter Stuyvesant. In the mid-18th century, around the time of the failed sewer, the Common Council made an effort to keep the most putrid businesses away from families. Businesses like slaughterhouses, breweries, tanneries, and glue factories all produced noxious smells. They were only allowed to operate north of the original city limits, and several businesses opened up around the collect. 
a pond that was about 48 acres in size and about 60 feet deep, straddling the area that is now Chinatown and the Civic Center. The pond was fed by underground springs and had two streams, one heading west to the Hudson and the other flowing east to the East River. The Collect, once a bountiful food source for the Lenapes and previously a fresh water source for the growing city, became a favorite industrial site and illicit dumping ground. By the end of the 18th century, it emanated gut-wrenching odors, caused by a toxic soup of rotting animals and waste chemicals. In that time period, waterborne disease was rampant and believed to be caused by smells. Frequent cholera outbreaks kept people on edge and the pond was declared a public nuisance. This pristine body of water, which existed since the last ice age, was obliterated in less than 200 years from the beginning of European colonization and made too contaminated to safely drink. Long gone were the numerous perch, sunfish, and eels. By 1811, the pond was filled in with earth from nearby hills and trash. A canal was constructed to drain the pond and the surrounding marshland. That canal, also putrid and smelly, would also eventually be filled in and become present-day Canal Street. For the Common Council, filling in the collect made complete sense. When you look at the skyline of New York, you'll notice that the skyscrapers are concentrated downtown Manhattan and Midtown. That's because these areas have a naturally occurring building foundation called Manhattan Schist, a rock deposited by the glaciers that form the islands in New York Harbor. The areas between the concentrations of skyscrapers are naturally swampy and silty, a network of wetlands that the Common Council saw as a hindrance to the growth of the burgeoning city. By filling in the collect and its tributaries, the Common Council was able to construct a new neighborhood. That neighborhood initially housed middle-class residents, but those people soon fled. The landfill job was less than satisfactory, and the aromas of dead animals and toxic waste were still pungent. The building sank. The streets were uneven and caving in. The water from the underground spring may have been hidden, but subterranean torrents still surged and shifted the soil beneath the new neighborhood. Eventually, poorer residents and immigrants moved in, and the neighborhood became the infamous Five Points, depicted in the Martin Scorsese film Gangs of New York. The only visible remnant of the collect is a park with a reflecting pool located on Leonard Street, between Center and Lafayette Streets. In December 2021, when we visited Collect Pond Park, the pool was drained, but upon looking at the terrain, it's obvious that the water never left. To this day, when you visit Collect Pond Park, you'll notice the ground still sinks, just as in the 19th century. The buildings situated where the pond used to exist are still vulnerable to the power of water. In a 1999 New York Times article, an engineer was quoted describing the cellars of the buildings lining Center Street, saying, if you look under a manhole cover in the pump room of 100 Center Street, the criminal court building, you can see the water coming in fast. Last September, during Superstorm Ida, water burst through the wall at the 28th Street 1 train station. According to Eric W. Sanderson, a conservation ecologist with the Wildlife Conservation Society in New York, 
The station is located right in the middle of a wetland, clearly shown on 18th century maps. The headwaters for Tood Rock, a stream that fed Sunfish Pond. You may be wondering, what the heck is Sunfish Pond? That's because, like the Collect, no visible trace of this pond or its tributaries remain. It was filled in in 1839, after becoming immensely polluted and then depleted when its waters were used to douse a fire. The muddy pit that was left of Sunfish Pond, like the Collect, became an obstacle to the city's growth and a public health hazard. But like its sister lake downtown, the waters originating in underground springs did not disappear. It is rumored that the Empire State Building has pumps in the basement to remove the groundwater that seeps in from the remnants of Sunfish Pond's tributary, Tood Rock or Old Wreck. The waterway was named after a 17th century Dutch ship that was wrecked along its course. In the early 1900s, when the rail tunnels connecting Long Island City and Manhattan were being constructed, the walls of the tubes had to be fortified under Park Avenue to prevent the intrusion of water from the remnants of the long-buried waterway. Those walls were reinforced in 1908, and over a hundred years later, holding back the waters of Sunfish Pond's tributary still remains a priority. A candid video of the 28th Street Station, uploaded by a Twitter user and published by Pix11, shows water blasting through a wall on the platform while several strap hangers appear to be unfazed, simply annoyed by how long their commute was taking. That's New Yorkers for you. They could be at risk of drowning in an ancient river and still wonder why the train is taking so long to come. All jokes aside, the remnants of Hurricane Ida made it apparent that we can't escape nature. Long-forgotten streams pumped up from the ground with a vengeance. Seventeen deaths were reported in New York State, where eleven basement dwellers in Queens suffered tragic fates. When these catastrophes happen, we are reminded that we are still at nature's mercy. No amount of concrete or development removes us from the wild. The lost ponds and streams will always seek to reclaim their course. Climate change and rising sea levels will perhaps make a lot of land in our city unviable, especially since lots of people unknowingly live on landfill. The natural drainage systems and coastal marshes that once absorbed and channeled the surplus water from storms have been stifled. The degradation and burial of long-forgotten bodies of water were caused by a series of decisions long before we were born, proving the Lenape principle of interconnectivity. We can't escape the past, and our decisions now will affect our descendants. New York has numerous bodies of water and shorelines that have been severely contaminated or altered. Like the Common Council before them, current lawmakers are focused on the growth of the city, and more often than not, profit margins have mattered more than the quality of life. At the end of the 18th century, Aaron Burr, a politician who also served as the third vice president of the newly formed United States, convinced city officials to let a private company, his company, be contracted to supply fresh water to New Yorkers. The Manhattan Company, started in 1799, was really a cover for Burr's true aspiration, banking. Using his political power as an assemblyman, 
Burr changed the wording of the charter for the water supply contract to allow the company to use revenue in any way it wanted. Much of the money he raised went towards establishing a bank, the precursor of today's J.P. Morgan Chase. Very little money was invested in the infrastructure providing drinking water. Burr's company used wooden pipes and supplied water of poor quality to Manhattan for over 40 years. The failure of the Manhattan Water Company led to a strain on the relationship between Burr and Alexander Hamilton, who would eventually be killed by Burr in a duel. Although Burr's company had the rights to supply Manhattan with water from the Bronx River, they chose inferior sources closer to the downtown settlement, perhaps even Sunfish Pond and Tood Rock. In 1821, 18 years before Sunfish Pond would be filled in, and 22 years before the demise of the Manhattan Water Company, Peter Cooper bought a glue factory near the pond shores, taking advantage of a nearby market that supplied him with cow's feet, which was boiled to create glue, gelatin, and household cement. The waste products generated by Cooper's factory sealed the fate of the pond, no pun intended. His factory eventually moved elsewhere and tainted another waterway. His name and legacy live on at Cooper Union, an architectural school that he founded in 1859 and at the Stuyvesant Cooper Village apartment complex on the east side of Manhattan, which is also named for our friend Peter Stuyvesant. Cooper is known as one of the most successful and celebrated businessmen and philanthropists in American history but his riches came at a steep cost for ordinary New Yorkers and the native plants and animals. Throughout New York's history, influential and wealthy men like Aaron Burr and Peter Cooper have made self-serving decisions that have impacted the health and safety of their contemporaries of humbler means and even future generations leading up to us. Not much has changed since the 19th century. To this day, developers and other corporate interests hold a lot of sway over elected officials. Like previous politicians, our lawmakers allow private interests to make decisions that affect thousands, if not millions. Just last year, Stephen Roth from Vornado Realty Trust met with former Mayor Bill de Blasio to air his concerns about the Fifth Avenue busway plan which would eliminate private car traffic on 5th Avenue and increase bus efficiency. Pressure from Stephen Roth and retailers in the area killed the plan. Like Aaron Burr before him, Roth was able to convince city officials that his business interests aligned with what's good for all New Yorkers. The people who came before us laid the foundation for how we live today. Not only were they tough people living with constant crime, disease, and danger, they also had tough stomachs. From its inception, New York has been a confluence of misfits, whose only commonality was hustling. New York didn't begin as a colony of one religious or ethnic group seeking freedom from persecution. Since the days of New Amsterdam, diverse peoples have been drawn here for opportunity to buy, trade, and sell. We have never manufactured or exported anything of significance besides culture. We are a city of ideas and dreams, and a lot of people have always had the idea that we could just dream garbage away, that our activities have no significant effect on the land. 
But as we can see with Sunfish Pond and The Collect, there are unintended consequences for abusing our environment and fighting against nature. Our lawmakers will have to devise a new plan for living in harmony with nature instead of engaging in a constant battle. We inherited a culture of being careless with our surroundings that started with the residents of New Amsterdam. Although literal pigs no longer run through the streets, we still have a lot of figurative ones, so we still have a lot of work to do. History has taught us that filth is not conducive to healthy living and also that nothing gets done unless a rich guy wants it done. Hopefully, a rich influencer comes along who cares less about investing in a unit in a super tall skyscraper and more about protecting and respecting our immediate environment. In New York, we follow the lead of the elite, and we desperately need a savior. The men and women who came before us gave us the stoop. Subways, the best tap water in the world, ganishes, pizzas, pretzels, and hot dogs. But they also left us with unique environmental challenges and poor practices that we will continue to explore in future episodes. I'm very old shoes are rotting away. Watch out a steaming pile of shit. New York, New York. There's so much refuse along the pathway. So just be careful where you step. New York, New York So many odors in the city that make you heave The garbage piled in a hill Rats in the heap Please take off your shoes Out in the hallway Please don't bring the grime in my house from old New York. Chip bags sailing on air, you see it everywhere. A rubbish though, New York, New York. Start the landscape like tumbleweeds And find I live in a slum I use condom right up the street I can't unsee All the plates of food Witness their decay I'm gonna try not to step in dog shit in old New York. And if you can 
stomach pull. Well, then this city's for you. Try not to puke. New York, New York. <coughs> that was theme from New York, New York by Rank Spinacha. I am Afia Henriquez, and thank you so much for joining me on this journey through time and on the first episode of Taste of Waste. We'd also like to thank the writers of Gotham, A History of New York City to 1898, Sergi Kodinsky of The Hidden Waters of New York, which is both a book and a blog. Thank you to Ephemeral New York. Thank you also to the ecologist Eric W. Sanderson for his informative piece in the New York Times titled, Let Water Go Where It Wants to Go. Also, thank you to my partner, Corey, and also my mom. Thank you to the New York City Parks Department and also the New York City Department of Sanitation, New York Strongest. On our next episode, we are going to be talking to New Yorkers about sidewalk violations. Peace out. Thank you.